Thank you. We'll just make sure that's, that's dead. That's better. Good morning. Thank you again, once again for the privilege it is to uh, speak here. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. This is a passage which is only found in Luke and it is without a doubt, uh, and this is going to sound strange, it's almost one of the funniest passages in scripture. And I mean funny in a ha-ha sense. You could almost see this uh, on a TV show. There's a scene here which is so uh, unusual and, and just uh, is quite amazing. So please, Luke chapter 11, we'll be starting at verse 5. Now we went with the first four verses of Luke 11 last time, which is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It dealt with, if you like, the procedure of prayer. How to say things, what to say. Not what to say in a rote fashion, but what's important to be included when we pray. The next few verses, down to verse 13, deals with the principles of prayer, the persistence necessary in prayer, the promises of prayer. It's gone from um, a, a how-to to a why, why we should be praying. And it deals with prayer and has some fascinating things and mentions a, a topic which is uh, quite important through all of scripture. So before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, you might open our hearts and minds here. Teach us, Lord, some of the wonderful things which are found in scripture. Lord, we ask you might instruct us, bless us and teach us, we pray at this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking here at a, a, a material which is it's an addition to what was, what was put in, in the Lord's Prayer. It, it's an explanation, an extra bit. In verse 5 he says unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? Just out of the blue. He starts talking about one friend going to another friend and saying, I need some bread. And it starts to, to raise an important thing to understand in scripture. And that is the topic of bread. Bread in scripture. Remember in the Lord's Prayer it said, give us this day our daily bread. Now here we have a story about someone who needs bread? When we get down to verse 11, it'll be, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father. Bread is, is just throughout this entire passage here. What do we know about bread in scripture? Well, we know that bread was primarily made out of either wheat or barley. Barley was a poor man's food. If you look in John chapter 6 verse 9, with the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Philip 
and Andrew bring to Christ a boy with five barley loaves. Barley loaves was, was peasants' food. It was, it was not, it's not a flash bread. You make bread out of barley, it's, it's not that good. Uh, but it was the bread of, of poor people. Over in, in the book of Judges, you find that Gideon is represented as a barley loaf when, when it smites the Midianites. The bread, when you made it, was made out of, made out of wheat or out of barley. The, the grain, when it was ground, could have been one of three kinds. You could have the really, really coarse ground stuff. Now, in, in Leviticus chapter um, 2, verse 14, it speaks of the bruised corn, the crushed wheat, as we would say. This has just been very, very coarsely ground and was quite often produced by heating the grain and then just crushing it. Um, if you went looking for something like that today, um, tabbouleh, okay? That's what we're looking at. Is, is that what we'd be looking at, at in, in that situation? Then there's the normal grain which was ground. This would be what we would consider wholemeal, okay? Just the whole grain ground up. But there was another kind too, what they would refer to as fine. Now, in Genesis chapter 18 is, is an interesting use of this term, the, the fine ground stuff. Genesis chapter 18, when, uh, when the Lord comes to visit Abraham, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favour in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your heart, so that after ye pass on. For therefore ye have come to your servants. And they said, So do as thou hast said. Now, this is interesting. And Abraham hasted into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. Fine meal. When Abraham wanted to bake something here, he said to Sarah, Fetch the fine meal. In other words, the expensive stuff. Not the cheap stuff. This is the good stuff. And it was fine because it had been sifted. It would be what we would think of as white flour. It wasn't all that white. It was still a dull grey colour. But it had been sifted to remove the coarser material. So it was fine. It was more expensive and uh, usually the province of, of rich people or for special occasions. Now, okay, we've got the flour, and this all bears on this story here. How did you cook it? How did you make your, your bread? Well, 
If you're making unleavened bread, you'd actually bake it on a, on a hot rock at home. You'd have this big curved rock and you'd heat it up in the fireplace and you'd put it on there. Much the same way as they made tortillas or nan bread now. That's what it was like, nan bread or soft tortillas. It was the unleavened bread. But if you leavened the bread, how did you cook it? We didn't actually cook it at home. Each village would have a communal bakery, a big oven. And the women of the village would come and bake their bread there usually every day. So there were at least two times when the women of the village would gather together. And, you know, vital pieces of information were exchanged. Oh, we, we might call that gossip, but no, no, they, this was vital information was, which was being exchanged about the, the village. Once was in the early morning when they go down to the well to fetch water. They did that in the morning so the water was cold. In the middle of the day, they would bake their bread. And it was baked what we would call sourdough. That is to say some of the dough with the yeast in it was retained and then mixed into the new meal and water and allowed to rise. All right? You think this, was, this gets important when you look at things in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, we have that the kingdom, it's written that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took three measures of leaven and mixed, uh, took leaven and mixed it into three measures of meal. Now, if you've been listening, how many measures of meal was Sarah asked to bake for the visit? Three. How many loaves of bread are being asked here of this man? Three. This, this keeps occurring that bread is often referred to in groups of three. So, the yeast, the leaven, is the leftover from yesterday's loaf. And so people would have understood, for instance, when Jesus used this illustration, that the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and mixed it with three measures of meal. He was talking about taking something old and mixing it with something new. That illustration would have been very clear to the people who'd seen this done. They would then let the dough rise, the women would let the dough rise, then they would take it to the communal bakery and they would bake it. What did it look like? It looked like a big wood-fired pizza oven. That's what it looked like. If you've ever been to a place, you know, where the wood-fired pizza, this is what it looked like. Big old communal oven. And this all bears on the story that's happening here. They would go and they would bake their bread. The women would, of course, had, would have had the young children with them. This is a scene that would have been repeated in our Lord's life day after day as he was a child growing up in Nazareth. He would have gone with his mother to the village bakery, the village oven, 
while the bread was baked. The little kids went with mum. So he would have seen this happen day after day. Now when they had, when they had finished baking the bread, they'd clean the oven out and in it they would put the tinder and the kindling for the next day's bakering, baking to keep it dry and to let it dry out. Do you not recall what is written in Luke? In fact, it's written in Luke chapter 12, just a little bit further on. So turn over to Luke chapter 12, all right? Verse 28. Luke chapter 12, verse 28, it says, If God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O ye of little face? Notice it says it's not cast into the fire. It's cast into the oven because today it is put in the oven to dry out for to be tomorrow's tinder. Every detail in scripture, every little detail is accurate. You didn't put the grass in the fire. You put the grass in the oven and dried it out. So you could light the fire for next day's baking. And who would have had that job? Who do you reckon would have copped the job of collecting up the grass and the twigs? The kids. The kids would have been told, go and collect up all all the grass and twigs that are lying around. So as soon as the bread's baked, we can put this stuff in the oven for tomorrow. It would have been a job he would have done as a child with his, his mother. So it's a scene, this is a scene straight out of village life that our Lord grew up in. And it's a situation of someone coming at midnight to a friend and saying, lend me three loaves at midnight. Now, there's no street lights here. There's no traffic The only people who are abroad at midnight in a Palestinian village are someone with an emergency or a thief. No no honest person was out at midnight unless you had a real emergency. And what's his emergency in verse 6? He says, a friend of mine in his journey is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Ah, this is an emergency, all right. Now, a friend has come in a journey. You just didn't show up at midnight to someone's place. So clearly, this first person has invited someone and said, on your journey, come and stay at my place. His friend has been delayed. I don't know, maybe the donkey had a flat tyre or something, yeah. but he's delayed and he's shown up late at night. He's got to stay there because there's no other place to stay. So he comes in and, he's, and, and he comes to his friend's house and his friend says, I have to pres- I've got to put a meal on. Now, understand the centrality of bread. The rabbis had taught, you can eat bread without having a meal. But you cannot eat a meal without having bread. Ah. 
if he didn't have bread to set before this guest, then he would have been so embarrassed. He's invited someone to his house and has no bread. This would have been so humiliating in the village life, so embarrassing that he has invited someone and now can't set a proper meal before him. So picture this situation. The friend has arrived and and the wife has said, we've got no bread, we're out. And the husband is panicked. What am I going to do? Well, it's, it's interesting here. You know, there is a group of, of theological thinking that says all the parables were actual events. They were actually things that happened. Okay? Now, I don't know the truth of that situation. It may be or it may be not. But this looks so much like an actual event that I, I wonder if it was. This actually happened there in Nazareth one day. So what's this man said? What's, what's happened in this household? His wife has said, quick, go down the road, borrow some bread. Well, who from? And she said, that, that, that carpenter, Joseph, I was with Mary at the, at the bakery today and she was baking extra. She's got three spare loaves. Go and borrow them. He says, Joseph? He says, yeah, you know, the carpenter, Mary, his, his wife, got that really cute little boy, them. So off he goes and he knocks on the door at midnight and says, I need three loaves. And what's the reply? Go away. (laughs) That's what the reply is. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. Go away. The door is shut. Now, it's not just that the door was shut. In those days, you didn't just push the door shut. You locked it and barred it to keep yourself safe. The door is shut. Locked and barred. It's dark. The light's gone out. My children are with me in bed. Hey, Well, again, if you understand the way the houses were set up, after the meal, the women would just clear the, the area, take out the rugs and the bedding which had been stored in a chest or in an alcove, spread it out on the middle of the lounge room floor because there was one room and everybody would, especially in winter, would sleep in the one bed. It was a lot warmer because when the fire went down there was no central heating. So they're all together, they're under the blankets and he's going... Go away, it's cold, the door's shut, we're all in bed, the kids are here. I don't want to know about it. I cannot rise and give you. But it's clear what this person has done. They've kept hammering on the door and saying, I need three loaves. And the voice from inside says, I don't care, but I need three loaves. And there's this feeling you get 
that, in the, that inside this man, and, and, and we imagine possibly it could have been Joseph, is going, I'll never get any sleep until I get this guy off my neck. So not because he's a friend, but just to get some peace and quiet, he gets up and gets the three loaves and gives it to him. And I can imagine there's a a woman and a little boy giggling in the blankets at the sight of this business going on. It's like I say, it's almost funny to imagine it. This argument going on but through a locked barred door with one man going, I need three loaves and someone inside saying, and I don't care. It's such a lifelike situation that I really, I, I believe this, this may have been an actual occurrence that happened during his childhood. And he tells this story. What does he say? Verse 8. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he's his friend, yet because of his importunity, Importunity, it's not a word you use a lot. You don't come across that word a lot. What are we saying here? Because of his impudence, because of his front, because of his pushiness, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So, What do we know here? What do we learn from this? He then says in verse 9, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. What do, is this what? Is God asleep? Do we need to wake God up? No, he's not saying. He's drawing a parallel here. And the parallel is one of contrast. He says, for notice down in verse 13, where it gets the whole point of these parables and these stories. If we, being evil, can do the right thing for the wrong reason, God, who has all the good reasons, shall most assuredly do the right thing for us. God who is good will do the right thing because we who are not so good know how to do the right thing, if even for the wrong reason. Do you have a need? Then ask. Seek out the one who has the solution to your need. There was no point for that man to go knocking on doors of people that had no bread. He had to go to the house where he knew someone had some loaves. There's no point for us as Christians to be knocking on the door of the world that has no bread for our souls. You've got a need? Ask. You, need, you have a need, seek the one who can do something about it and knock. Is it midnight? 
It doesn't matter. Does it seem like the door of heaven is shut and barred? Doesn't matter. Don't care. Keep knocking. Are all God's children silent and asleep? Then knock a little louder. I said last time, when John the Baptist was mentioned, you can be a great Christian without miracles, but not without prayer. We can be a great church without miracles. We can be a great church without many things. But we cannot be a great church without prayer. Carl Barton told me one time, number of people you see on a Sunday morning, that tells you how much they like the preacher. The number of people you see at Bible study, that tells you how much they love the word. The number of people you see at prayer meeting, that tells you how much they love God. A touch harsh perhaps, but Carl didn't get too many things wrong. All we have as people and all we have as a church can vanish instantly if we fail to pray, if we become a prayerless church. A prayerless church is a powerless church. Prayerless people are powerless people. The chain of eternal life that binds you to heaven was forged a link at a time by prayer. You want to go out and reach people? Form a, cha- form a, pray- a prayer chain in your heart. Pray link after link after link. You want to get them into heaven? Then pray that they'll listen. Then pray that the Holy Spirit will touch their hearts. Then pray that the word of God will have course in their lives. Pray and people will be saved. It happens. How do we know that it happens? Because we've seen it happen. Prayer accomplishes things which the world cannot understand. The power of prayer in a church cannot be underestimated, understated or understood sometimes. But prayer does things. It does things in our lives and does things in our church. And I say unto you, ask, it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. You notice they are not ifs. They're not maybes. It does not say, ask and eh, maybe. Seek and if you're lucky, you might. Knock and might get an answer. No, no, these are guarantees. It's a guarantee by God that if you do these things, there will be an answer. Now, the next verse 
He deals with what the answer is. He says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Now just stop for a minute. Does that, does that remind you of anything? Does that trigger a memory anywhere? Bread? Stones? If you look back in, still in Luke, yeah, look back at the start of Luke. Look back Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterwards hungered, and the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Bread and stones. There's a link here. Now, when they baked bread, they didn't bake it in tins. Okay, so it was not square loaves. They were round. And you put them in the, in the, the communal oven we were talking about, and they form sort of a dome shape and flat on the bottom. And you can go into the deserts of Palestine and you can find flat, round rocks that look just like a loaf of bread. Because remember, the bread had a bit of ash on the outside, you know, a bit of dust, and, and it was, wasn't a white colour, it was a browny grey colour, and it looked quite similar to these flat, round rocks. And Jesus says, listen, if any of you are a father and your kids ask, for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give them a rock. Rock looks the same, but it's no good. Now, granted, there are some times I have met people when they cook bread, there is a distinct similarity to rocks. I have, I have seen some food, that I, uh, some, some loaves of bread, I, I swear they could be used as a weapon. But we're talking about normal situations here. These loaves, you know, you could imagine Jesus there in the wilderness and he's looking down and he's seeing, yeah, these rocks, they, they look just like the loaves of bread that mum used to bake. And the devil saying to him, yeah, looks the same. Why don't you just command it to become one? But what a sick joke it would be if a hungry child came and asked their father for some bread and they gave them a rock. That'd be, you go, that's, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? God will not give us that which is worthless. We ask for bread, he will not give us a rock. Because he will not give us that which is worthless. The second illustration used here. If he ask a fish, 
will he for a fish give him a serpent? Now, you can, you can actually eat a snake. They're not that bad tasting, little like chicken. What does a snake taste like? Well, it tastes a lot like lizard, but that's you know, the only description you can give. The point is, a snake has scales, like a fish, but it's not holy. It's not clean according to the law. It's similar, but it's not clean. God will not give us something which is unclean when we ask him. If we ask for a fish, he will not give us an unclean version of something. He will not give us that which is worthless. He will not give us that which is unclean. Thirdly, it says, if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now, I don't know if you've ever worked with scorpions. At night when it gets cold in the desert, scorpions curl up. Right? What they do is they put their sting right over their, their, their heads and they pull their legs in as close as they can and they form a tight little ball so they don't lose any heat. And if you weren't too smart, you might mistake it for a little mottled egg. God will not give us that which is dangerous and harmful. When we come to God, as he said, and we ask and we seek and we knock, God will not give us that which is worthless. God will not give us that which is unholy. And God will not give us that which is dangerous. God will give us what we need. God will refuse you nothing which is for your good. Now, I didn't say he will refuse you nothing. I said he will refuse you nothing which is for your good. And those of us who have been parents, and if you cast your mind back, those of you who haven't been parents have probably at one stage been a child, you know there were things you asked for which were not for your good. And if your parents were wise, they refused you. God gives us things which are as useful and pure and as safe as himself. Our Father in heaven will give the child of God of his very essence to indwell him. What good thing, that is what thing for our good, will our heavenly Father refuse? Nothing. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask it? You want to ask something of God? If it's for your good, he will give it to you. Guaranteed. First Peter 
Chapter 5, verse 7, most of you could quote it says, Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Our heavenly Father cares for us. And if we will but pray, the windows of heaven shall be opened and a blessing showered down on us that we could not imagine. But notice, in that first story, who was the bread for? Wasn't for the man asking. It was for a friend who needed it. You want to start praying? You want to start seeing things happen? Pray for those who have no spiritual bread. Pray for those for whom the word of God has been denied and withheld. Pray for those who need the Saviour. And pray and ask and seek and knock. And if it seems like the windows of heaven are shut and the door is locked and bolted and all God's children are in bed asleep, then continue to pray and call upon your heavenly Father and say, these people need bread. And I'll let you in on a secret. Preacher's secret. That's how preachers pray. That we are not praying for ourselves. We spend our time before we preach praying for you. That Lord will open hearts and minds and the word of God will get into souls and lives. Not for ourselves. But that the word of God might reach the people who hear these words. Oh, a praying church. How desperately do we need churches who pray? Powerless churches. Our country is studded with them. There are churches out there where the word of God is still spoken. But they seem to lack power. They seem to have no drive. They seem to have nothing that makes things happen. The reason is, brethren, they don't pray enough. If we really want to make our church vibrant, if we really want to reach souls, if we really want to do things, and I believe that this church is poised on the brink of doing great things for God, we need to pray. A church which prays cannot be defeated. A church which prays cannot be held back. There is, it has been said that there is nothing that frightens the powers of hell so much as the sight of a Christian on their knees. That's where the power is for a church. A powerful church is a praying church. A powerful preacher has people who pray for them. I ask you, how often do you pray for your pastor? 
You want... Okay, he's probably still listening. Do you want better sermons? You want sermons that, that really touch your heart? Pray for your pastor. Pray for the speakers. You'll be amazed how much better their sermons are when you, pre- when you pray for what they're preaching about. Of course, it might be that it changes your heart too. And so what he, pre- what he preaches now has more effect on you and on the people around you. Prayer is essential if this church is to achieve things. The bread of life is prepared. It's going out to reach hearts and minds around us. But it can only reach the lives if we pray. Now, I'm going to upset people now. Someone over there I'm going to upset because I'm going to change the final hymn. I'd like us to close with hymn 354. Don, I've already got it up here, mate. You're set here. I'd like us to pray and to preach and to sing with these thoughts in mind. Brethren, this church can never be stopped if it's a praying church with praying people. Thank you, Don.